A reading from Luke 4, 38-44. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So, one of my favorite things was just called to my attention that maybe has ever happened at Trinity Grace Church. Are you ready for this? It's, it's a family Sunday. How many kids do we have in the room with us? Raise your hand if you're a child. What's up? Nice to have you. Uh, yeah, every fifth Sunday we, we bring uh, the whole church together. All the kids are with us. And Elisa, our children's ministry director, very wonderfully and beautifully made an activity pad for the kids so they don't have to listen uh, while the sermon is happening. And uh, I was just looking on the word search uh, on the activity pad. This is actually not a word that's listed as an option, but the word beer is, is in the activity pad word search. So bonus points to any kid who finds and circles the word beer in the kids' ministry activity pad word search. Parents, too, if you want to find, find it. It's great, right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, another opportunity to be together as a church family. I pray uh, as we hear from your word right now that... Um, that you would, you would give us ears to hear. You mentioned that um, when you were walking, Lord uh, Jesus, in your ministry, you mentioned that over and over again, that um, people can be given, can have ears to hear, Lord. And of course, we're all hearing, hearing the words together, but I pray that you would give us discernment to sense what you are saying to us in the midst of that. God, we commit this time to you, and we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was, uh, I was reading a resource uh, by John Wimber this week, and I came across a few statistics that I want to share with you. Um, there are 41 instances uh, of Jesus healing recorded in the four Gospels. Um, and in several of them, uh, the instance isn't just one individual person being healed, but like this uh, text that we have in, at the end of Luke 4, it says that many people were brought to him and many people were healed. So for, 41 is the first, first number. The second is nearly one-fifth of the Gospels, uh, the Gospel accounts are devoted to Jesus' healing ministry directly or to the discussions that are occasioned by it. 
So 41 instances of healing, one-fifth of the, of the record of the four Gospels uh, are devoted to Jesus' healing ministry and the discussions occasioned by it. There are uh, uh, 3,779 verses in the four Gospels. 727 of them relate sp- specifically to the healing of physical and mental illness or the resurrection of the dead in the ministry of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he was functioning as a healer. It is an unmissable, significant part of his ministry. As a matter of fact, Jesus sort of frames his his ministry in the beginning of Mark by saying, repent, which is a a church word that we use a lot that basically means you're going one direction, turn and go an entirely different direction, and the reason is the kingdom of God is at hand, so turn and go an entirely different direction, reorient every aspect of your life, because the kingdom of God is breaking into the world in in a new way, and, and you're meant to be a part of it. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then what Jesus is doing in his ministry is is describing what that kingdom them looks like in direct teaching and allusions and parables and things that draw out people's imagination, but he's also demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like. When the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven, people are made well. Wrong things are set right. Now, I have been attending church since I was a little kid, um, since I was finding beer in my own word searches. Um, and I haven't really had any trouble believing the accounts of, of Jesus' healing that are recorded in the Gospels. I'm not tempted towards Thomas Jefferson you know, going through and cutting out the miraculous parts uh, of, of the New Testament. Basically, why? Well, I believe that Jesus' death on the cross matters 2,000 years later. I believe that he rose from the dead. So pretty much any miracle you want to file under his life after that is like, great, sure. He came back to life. He made someone better. Sure, I'm I'm on board with with all of that. But when it comes to my participation in Jesus' ministry of healing, there's been a lot more caution, Uh, a lot more, if I'm honest, skepticism about believing that God wants us to have a share in the healing ministry of Jesus now. Even though one-fifth of the gospel accounts revolve around this ministry of Jesus, and I believe Jesus is inviting us to participate in what he is doing in, in the world. Now, I have, I have many stories like, like some of you. Sometimes I've, I've been with someone, I've prayed for them, and they actually did get better. And I have no way to explain it except that God moved in that particular instance. But I also have the stories like, like many of you might have as well where there was a, a kid in my youth group who was a year older than me. And he went to the lake with his friends and was water skiing and n- nothing happened that he, could, that he knew about. But he woke up in the middle of the night and his, his back was, was burning. His, he had tingling down his legs. And the next morning he woke up paralyzed. This guy who would play basketball with me, who'd been at youth lock-ins with me, who'd done word searches with me, all of a sudden can't walk. And we had, we had our whole church gathered around him and our, and, our, and our music minister and our pastors and we would lay hands on him and we genuinely had faith that he was going to be better. That he was going to get, like, I remember as a kid sitting there. Just use this for a minute. Yeah. Try to switch out. Okay. Got a problem with the pack? You want the pack? Guys, this is all part of it. It's all, all part of it. So, 
I remember as a kid sitting there with, and, and listening to the instruction of, of my pastors, and we were laying hands on my friend Josh, and I'm expecting him to stand up out, out of the wheelchair at, at any moment, and they never did, and Josh is in a wheelchair to, to this day. So I see what Jesus is doing in the Gospels, and my, there's a part of my heart that, that, that believes it, that, that long, longs for if something like that is possible, of course I would want to be a participant in it, but maybe for the same Objections that many of you have. Watch how smoothly we're going to do this. Still working? Still doing it? Okay, well, you know what? We're just going to go with this mic now. Two mics. Woo! Did I mention there's beer in the word search? All right. So I've had some level of caution about... Um, my, my participation <laughs> in the healing ministry of Jesus' glory. And I'm, I'm imagining if, if you're like me, it's because some similar reasons are present. What if I pray for someone to get better and they don't get better? Then I look foolish. What if someone who prays for people and they do get better all of a sudden becomes seemingly, at least on the outside, very puffed up about that and acting as if they've got God's power on a tap dispenser and they can say the right words in their particular ministry and then God's going God's to do it. These, these are the people who have God showing up in this particular way. That's made me feel a little put off at times. Why does it happen in one place and, and not happen in another, in another place? We have so much advances in, in medicine in the modern world. Perhaps this is God's way of, of helping to bring healing to more and more people is to give us the advances that we have in medicine. I don't think those are unreasonable concerns. And then I go back to the Gospels and Jesus keeps showing up and healing people. And I'm confronted with that and challenged by that. He, he heals people, then he demonstrates how he heals people to his disciples, then he sends them out to try praying for people to be made well, then uh, he helps them when there's setbacks and confusion, when things don't go according uh, to plan, and then when they go out on their own, when Jesus finally leaves them and gives them the responsibility of taking this kingdom of God to uh, the, the, the rest of the known world... When that happens, they go around, they pray for people, and those people are, are healed. So I just want to share this, and I'll share this very personally, and then I, I know there are many people in our church who are already there, but I want to share this very personally, and then I want to, I want to, my, my prayer and, and other people's prayer has been that we as a church might uh, believe more than we have in this particular area. I'm coming to the conviction that I don't want to miss a part of how God wants to show his love how God wants to show his power, how God wants to show the beauty of his kingdom actually coming on earth as it is in heaven because I have some ideas about how praying for people to be healed could go wrong. I don't want to miss out on, on God doing something significant in, in our midst or in your life or in your body because I have some very reasonable, sophisticated, thoughtful ideas about why, why healing might go wrong if we, if we try to press into it. We are people who admire Jesus. 
We worship him. He is our savior. We are nourished by his meal. We are are given his forgiveness. We participate in his mercy. And there are so many aspects of his life that that, that we admire and we worship. But we aren't just called, and, and pay attention to this, we aren't just called to be people who admire Jesus. But who follow him. Who emulate him. Who walk in his ways. Who share in his ministry now. And so... I, I, wanna, I want you to see what's going on in Luke 4, and, 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 then, and then very simply, I want us to pray for each other. So this might, might, might not be at all, but for some of you, it might be a bit, this Sunday might be a bit of a stretch, and I'm very glad that you're here. So our passage says at the beginning of it that after, after, the, after the synagogue, Jesus went to Simon's mother-in-law's house. So... After something has happened, Jesus shows up at the end of the day at his mother-in-law's house. She's sick. He prays for her. She gets better. And then a whole bunch of people show up. But I want to back up to the beginning of the chapter. If you want to follow along, the verses are going to be on the screen, but we're going to kind of quickly move through Luke chapter 4 if you want to turn there in your phone. So here's the first verses of the chapter. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And then the most obvious phrase in all the scriptures, at the end of them, he was hungry. Okay? So Luke, as as a gospel writer, is not letting you miss a few details that he keeps hammering. He keeps hitting them over and over again. When Jesus comes, uh, when, when Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's, he's led by the Holy Spirit, right? When he comes back from the wilderness, in verse 14, Luke draws our attention to it again. Jesus returned from Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So, just, I want you to pay attention to those phrases that are used to describe how Jesus is moving around at the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. This happens at his baptism. Jesus has labored in obscurity for 30 years, and as he steps onto the public scene in his ministry, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then the Holy Spirit descends on him, and we have the affirmation of his identity by the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, and he's filled with the Spirit of God. Then he's, so internally he's filled by the Spirit of God. He's also led by the Spirit of God, and he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So whatever Jesus is doing, Luke keeps drawing our attention that the whole of the Trinity is involved. The Father has declared his affirmation, the Son is walking in obedience, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus do? The first thing is the temptation. That's the, that's the, the, the first part of, of Luke chapter 4. We have this identity of his affirmation of his identity has occurred. Uh, this is what's taking place in Jesus' baptism. He's filled with the Spirit, and now there's a test of his identity that's experienced. This is, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he experiences categorical temptation around the primary areas that we as human beings are tempted. Now, when I say categorical temptation, I don't want you to imagine that it was any less specific than when you and I feel tempted. It was, it was actual specific temptation to do actual specific things. But in the moment, if you step back and you survey the ways that Jesus was tempted, he was tempted in some of the, the archetypal categorical ways that we as human beings are tempted to be our own gods in the world. 
And, and we see that he is in a conflict. He's actually in a conflict with the spiritual being, the, the, the accuser, the Satan, as the, as, the, as, the, as the scriptures translated. This conflict with, G, with Jesus and the accuser shows up over and over again. And the exact nature of it, right? You can't miss this. The exact nature of the conflict and the temptation is to meet real needs in his life outside of the way of God. Well, we have to have an understanding. Some, some of us, we, we came from a traditional teaching of, of, of what sin is. And so our, our definition is only just understanding obviously, obviously bad moral things, right? And that's our only category, category for sin. But, but the scriptures broaden that so much. And they basically say when you're trying to be your own God, even when you're doing really good things, when you're trying to categorically meet the deepest needs of your life without considering God, then, then you're operating in the way, in the nature of sin. And these, these areas that we're tempted to meet our own needs in, look at them, right? Appetite, turn this, turn this stone into bread. A- a- ambition, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. People will see that you are who you say you are. He's tempted in the area of appetite. See if this resonates in your own life. Ambition and approval. Another way to say them, consumption, security, status. You can trace these archetypal temptations all the way through the story of the scriptures, all the way back to the garden. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. This is so significant. And the Spirit leads him into a place where he's tempted, where unlike Adam and Eve in the, in the, in the, the beauty and plush environment of the garden experience these temptations, Jesus faces them in the wilderness. And for every one of them, he responds with the promises of God, the instruction of God, with the word of God in context. So I, I know that this is basic review for so many of you, but I want you to see what Jesus was enduring the echo is fantastic, right? You guys are liking that? We brought that in special for you. Jesus was enduring a temptation that humans had perpetually succumbed to. Romans 5 gives us a little, a little comment on that. For just as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus was enduring temptation that humans had perpetually succumbed to. Jesus was also winning a victory that we could share in. There are multiple times where this type of thing happens. David goes into the wilderness, he wins a victory over Goliath, and then the people share in that victory. The David and Goliath story is not a story about if you're short, you you still matter in the world. That's true, but it's a story about the kingdom of God coming and one person winning a victory that many share in. So Jesus would win a victory and others would share in it. And then Jesus is showing us us. I'm going to keep doing it. The way to fight temptation in our own lives. So what are we, what are we seeing? Jesus is our savior. He's doing something that, that no one has been able to do and that no one could do on their own. He's resisting and fighting and winning a victory that we will share in, but he's also showing us the way. He is our savior and he is our God. The temptation. And then we have the tale of two services. As you move down in, in this chapter of Luke, Jesus comes back from the wilderness. In verse 14, as the chapter pivots, Luke tells us that he's moving in the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes to synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath. And we have this other famous moment 
where, where Jesus declares what he's come to do. He says, this is what I'm doing in the world. The service is ending, and at the, as the service was ending in, in, a, in a typical synagogue service, they would hand uh, one, one of the readings to a young man in the congregation who could read and then possibly make a comment on, on that section. It tells us that Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah, but then he found the place. He found the place where it is written, and this, for many of you, this will be important. This is what Jesus reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, whoo, to, pro- to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Third mic, beer in the word search. We're rolling. You guys got that? was on the screen. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Just look at, okay, Jesus is about to say, this is my ministry. This, I'm doing this in your midst. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me for what? To proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, healing, recovery of sight to the blind, to set people who are oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's hearkening back to this year of jubilee that Israel was invited into, which apparently they never actually practiced, which was an erasure of all the debts and a returning of people to their homes and families. Then he rolled up the scroll... This is the ultimate Jesus dropped the mic moment at the beginning of his ministry. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. People are amazed. And people begin to do what people in small towns begin to do. <laughs> they begin to evaluate Jesus based on what they already know about him. In a town where everybody knows each other, they're like, wow, that was really powerful. Is that Joseph's son? What, what, what is, it wouldn't really we expect this from Joseph's son. And they all spoke well of him. All were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus sees through their amazement into, into their concern, primarily being about just them. And then he says something that scandalizes them. Listen to what Jesus says next. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, and when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine through the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there, are, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet, no one was, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So I want you just to picture what's happening here. They're in a church gathering, in synagogue. Jesus has been handed this passage from Isaiah. He's read it. Then he says, this is about to ha- this is happening in your midst. The people are amazed. And Jesus goes next level on them down to their heart and motivation. And he says, you, you, you love this, but you only love it for you. You're primarily concerned about your own heart, your own life, your own people, your own tribe. And you're missing a huge part of what God is doing in the world. And he illustrates this by saying, when God's power came in days past, his provision and famine came for this one Gentile woman. 
the last person you would have ex- expected, not, not, not providing for someone in the children of Israel, but for this, for this Gentile woman. And, and he mentions the healing of a ruler, Naaman, who was actually an enemy of the people of Israel. And the people go from amazed to murderous. They want, it, they want him dead. And this is what it says. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the the crowd and went on his way. Now, I've switched mics three times. This sermon might go a little long. I'm imagining, though, that none of you will rise up and drive me out to the Brooklyn Bridge and throw me off. Now, people just made a face, and that's not cool. I saw that. I can see you. I don't need to fix this mic. It's not working. I want you to imagine this, right? He says these words, and the people are so angry that they... Imagine just sheerly the emotional trauma of seeing a group of people rise up, drag you out, drive you to the edge of the town, and threaten to throw you off a cliff because you said, hey, remember when God heals, he didn't just heal people from your group, he healed other people. Wow. Puts his finger on a place that is very sensitive in their heart. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this, but Jesus travels about 20 miles to Capernaum, where much of his ministry in Galilee is going to be based, and the next week, on the Sabbath, he goes to a synagogue, and here's what happens. So, service number one, Jesus says what he's come to do. They love it. Then he says, hey, some of you uh, have prejudices and selfishness in your heart that needs to be exposed, and they wanted to kill him. And then he goes to Capernaum, and here's what happens in Capernaum. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, it's on the screen, on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. An impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before all of them and came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are with authority and power. He gives orders to the impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Another service. Another example of what is really going on inside of people is exposed. This man, who knows how long he'd been sitting in their midst, or maybe everyone knew, but this man has some experience where it's, it's demonstrated that his life has been oppressed, that he has not been free, that his life has been overridden by a power that is beyond his will to change, and he, cr- he cries out in the middle of that service, and Jesus heals him. He, he speaks a word of deliverance, and the man is free. So in service one, the people try to kill him, and service two, they praise him for his authority to set people free, and then they absolutely swamp him with need. In both instances, Jesus eventually has to withdraw. He's either rejected or he is overwhelmed with, with, with the nature of the need. But Jesus keeps demonstrating this all the way from the temptation onward. He is in a profound conflict. Hear this. Jesus and his kingdom are in a profound conflict with what keeps people bound up. Thought processes, temptations, prejudices, selfishness, demons, illness. When the kingdom of God is coming, it is confronting the places where people are bound up, 
where, where, where people are not living in freedom, where people are not flourishing and thriving. When the, another way to say it is where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. <laughs> Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's moving in the power of the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So then he finally gets home. And my wife can tell you what this is like. No matter how, how good or bad it's gone, then it's like home and the gravitation of the chair and the giants. And like you just want to rest after, after, some, after something like this. And Jesus walks home and there's more to do. Simon's mother-in-law has this raging fever and his day is not over. Here's, here's our teaching text. I'm going to give it to you one more time. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now, whatever your theological convictions are, I want you to hear this. Jesus heals many people. He speaks to Simon, Simon's mother-in-law. This is where, where it begins on this particular evening. His, his mother-in-law has this raging fever, and he walks into the environment, and he does something a little bit strange. He had rebuked a demon earlier, this su- supra-natural spiritual force. He had spoken to it, and that demon had left. Now he walks in, and he speaks to a fever that way. He speaks to a fever like it has a personal aspect to it, which is, which is a strange thing, but we might, we, we might want to imagine that Jesus is not content just to deal with the symptoms, that he is constantly connecting the physical to the spiritual to the emotional. He is seeing us in the whole reality of our lives. And and many times our attention is right only on the cusp of our most nagging symptom, and Jesus will address a a level down from that. That's what he did in the first synagogue, right? They loved what he had to teach about the Bible, but when he confronted their prejudices, they were angry. Right, the, the service was going along fine, and then a man who had been oppressed internally begins to show that, and Jesus has to deal with the reality. Then he goes home to Simon's, Simon's house, and his mother-in-law has this fever, and he speaks to the fever like it's a person, or, or a personality. He's constantly making this connection between the physical and the spiritual. He does, it, he does this a lot. Remember the friends bring their paralyzed buddy to Jesus, and the place is packed, so they have to go on the roof with their paralyzed friends, dig through the roof, lower this guy down in front of Jesus. After all this effort, the paralyzed man lowered down in the middle of the room in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, what? Your sins are forgiven. I just imagine his friends exhausted on the roof and like looking in, like, what? Heal him. He can't walk. His sins are forgiven. Great. All of it. Make it better. Jesus doesn't just deal with the surface level. He goes, he goes for the heart. And then in that moment, he does tell the man to get up and to walk. But he's constantly connecting the physical and the spiritual. Jesus is about healing the whole person. And the fever was just a part of them. And this is what he does. I want you to pay attention to these details because we're going to do this. He lays hands on them and he heals them. And we see this pattern. You can imagine because it says he healed many people on this particular evening. You can imagine the pattern would be similar to what we see showing up with Jesus over and over again. Now, I'll, I'll be honest. One time I prayed for a man, to, a boy, to come back from the dead in China. 
He didn't. I did it twice. I went back. I had them take me all the way back to the morgue again. Like, so sure that God had called us to do this. I laid hands on the guy. And, and now I'm like, I feel God had called me to this place to lay hands on this kid and pray for him to come, come back to life. But if he had come back to life, oh gosh, I would have immediately died. <laughs> Just lay me down. And so... I'm trying to pray and I'm just trying to summon everything I've ever heard about God into this prayer. God, in Genesis, you're a creator. Create life again. You know, it's just like, oh, summon everything. Just pray. If I could pray the very best prayer in the world, if I said the right words and I, and I really meant them, like people in church say, if you really mean it. And Jesus prays for people to be, re- be well and he's like, see, get up be healed so simple just the the authority to believe that 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 he can say this and it's it's going to happen Jesus was looking all the time to see what was happening. I think maybe he didn't pray with his eyes closed. He was looking to see what was happening. Where is faith showing up? Where is something else at work beyond just the symptom that this person is experiencing? How, how do things need to go in this particular instance? Often, it's... it's, it's uh, it's, it's not so much that Jesus is inviting someone to have confidence that their symptom can go away, but if you listen to the words of the people who speak and have faith when Jesus does healing, most of the time their confidence is just that he is who he says he is. Can you heal my daughter? She's far away. He's like on the way. He's like, you don't even need to go. I know you're who you say you are. If you say it, it'll happen. It's not so much, can you rev up confidence that God will do a miracle in this very moment for you, or can you have a deep, abiding, peaceful confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that you have a full share and participation in that because you are a son or daughter of God, redeemed by his blood, which wasn't wasted one bit. The power of the resurrection is alive in your life, and so you don't have to dance before him and show off before him and pray all the right words. You can simply because you care and he cares, lay hands on someone with your eyes open and say, God, would you make this person well? And sometimes he does. He really does. Jesus doesn't add hype. In fact, as God is pouring out healing and great attention is required, right? Here's something that you need to know. Praying for someone's healing requires great attention to that person. It requires listening to them, listening not just to the surface level symptoms that they're describing, but listening to what's really going on in their life, talking about their connection or or disconnection from God, talking about the emotional realities that these wounds have caused in them, talking about what they're hoping for, asking, do you believe that Jesus can heal? Do you believe that he might want to even heal you now? It requires attention, and by the end, Jesus is exhausted, He literally goes until daybreak, and by daybreak, he has to get away and go and be. Now, I haven't been looking for this, really. I mean, I... I started this series on Jesus and had it outlined, and I put this, this one in, Jesus Healer, because it's like one-fifth. What am I going to say? But there's one-fifth of the things Jesus does. He's making people better. But this hasn't been in my paradigm. I've had much skepticism, but God keeps putting me in places. I went this week, this week I went to, to, to sit down with some church planters, and they tricked me. God tricked me. 
I thought I was going to talk to them about, how, tell us about how Trinity Grace's 11 churches work together and the, how everyone shares authority. And, and I'm just talking on and on for an hour or so sharing with these people the little bit that I know. Then all of a sudden it turns on me that every one of them, like this couple over here is uh, leaders in the vineyard movement in e- England and they've been mentored by John Wimber. This other guy has this powerful healing ministry in Ohio. I'm like, who are you people? And I, and I start telling them what I'm preaching on and then it, we're in my favorite ramen joint in New York City. We're in a poodoo at one of those big tables and they're laying hands on me praying for an anointing of healing to come on our church. I'm like, God, what are you doing? Stop this. <laughs> I've never had experiences like, like this, but I was, in, I was in a pastor's meeting a few, a few weeks ago with some guys from around the country and I had this like, we're starting to pray and I had this like buzzing in my hands. So I'm like, oh man, too much sugar. I was on the whole 30, now I'm not. What's wrong with me? I had this buzzing in my hands, and I had this overwhelming thought that won't stop playing very loudly in my head. There's someone here that you need to pray for their back. I'm like, no, I don't know about that. So finally, like a lull, no one's praying. I'm like, if someone has a hurt back, I want to pray for it. And like a minute goes by, no one does. I was like, see God? And then someone raised their hand, sure enough. And this guy had been dealing with this hurt back for a long time. I pray, I pray for him and I do it, I do it again. I like rope-a-dope theological prayer. Come on, God, please. And I, no, no electricity or anything. While I'm praying, I walk, I walk away and God's like, go back. And I was like, hey, I feel like, I don't know where this came from, but I feel like you might be carrying burdens that you're not meant to be carrying anymore. And this back pain might be somewhat connected to that. And he's like, just a few months ago, uh, someone spoke that exact word word to me that that my back pain was connected to these burdens that I haven't been being willing to let go and I I finally need to to release them. And so this guy didn't just stand up straight and start juggling, but like God in a very subtle and beautiful way was moving in the midst of that. And and this is, I've been saying this week after week, if that is possible, if God wants to show his love in that way to someone, who are we to walk around not believing? (laughs) Who are we to be the limiting factor? (laughs) Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, fights temptation with the word of God. And so should we. No one has a problem with that, really. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, declares his ministry, quoting from Isaiah 61. He says, this is the things I'm about. And every one of us would say, those are the things we want to be about. Then Jesus prays for people to be well. And so should we. He is our savior and he is our guide. He is the one we worship and he is the one we emulate. I, was, I, I went and found some resources from John Wimber and, and here's some really practical instructions because we're going to move right now into a time of praying for people. And this is what he says. First of all, often it is, it is the way people encounter God and begin a relationship with him that he heals them in some way. I love what Wimber says on this. The most fundamental skill required for healing is openness to the Holy Spirit emptying oneself and receiving his leading and power. 
Frequently I encounter people who want a method for healing, a formula they can follow that guarantees them automatic healings. But, but divine healing is, a, is neither automatic nor dependent on our actions. It is rooted in a relationship with God and the power of His Spirit. Divine healing is a gift from God, an act of His mercy and grace. Our part is to listen to Him and carry out His word. John Wimber said, people ask him all the time, how did you start praying for people for healing? He said, well, it was in the book. I just saw it there and I started doing it. End of sermon. I do want to invite Eric and the people who play music to come forward. And here's, here's what we're going to do. Um, The instructions of the scripture say sometimes it can be true of of an individual or a community that you have not because you ask not. I don't know whether God God is would would do miraculous healings on the spot today, or if He would heal people over time, or I don't know exactly the ways that He He would work in our midst even this morning. But I don't want it to be true of Trinity Grace Park Slope that we don't have because we don't ask. So I want to pray for the healing of God to come in our lives this morning. And I want, to, I want to ask if you're praying for someone that you listen for God's direction, that you really listen to the person, take them for the whole being that they are, really listen to them, and then we're going to lay hands on one another and pray for each other to be healed. We're going to pray for healing on all levels of life, but I do, I do want to give us some instruction. Well, we're, going to, we're going to start worshiping, and then I'm just going to give us some instructions as we go. So we're, we're going to stand up, we're going to worship, and I want you to be thinking, is there something that you need prayer for healing on this morning? And we're going to have some of our, our, our prayer deacons and ministry team that are going to be up here that would love to receive you, would love to pray with faith for you for healing. Okay, that, that'll be the first thing. We'll just worship for a few minutes, and then I'll invite you forward to receive prayer for, for, for healing, especially. If you're, if you're dealing with something that you, you need God to move on specifically today. And then, and then I'll, I'll give us a, a few more instructions in just a little bit. But let's stand to our feet. Heavenly Father, we, we, we surrender this entire time to you as we have from, from the beginning. I pray, God, uh, that you would guard us. I pray, God, that you would... Give us discernment in these, these moments. You would help us listen to the voice of your spirit to know what's really happening. I pray that you would prompt people who need healing to come forward and receive prayer for healing. I pray that you would give uh, guidance and direction to those people who are praying. And I pray for the whole room, Lord, that we would just speak to you right now with, with hearts full of faith full of faith that you are who you say you are, that you are Savior, that you are King, that you are the resurrected one, that you have given us life, that your kingdom is coming, and I just pray your kingdom would come in our bodies, in our minds, in our emotions, in our lives as it is in heaven this morning. We trust you and not our own abilities. We give you worship and praise, God. Lead us as we seek to be obedient as best we know how to what your word says and to share in the ministry that you have. Let's sing in Jesus' name.